I'm going to. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As you do that, we're in a series of messages uh, looking at the awe-inspiring, some of the awe-inspiring attributes of God. And if you receive our weekly prayer letters, uh, you will know that 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is not the text that I had originally chosen for this particular week. Uh, My plan changed on Wednesday night, and I trust it was the Lord's doing. I was here with um, John Tierney. We were praying for our church, for the future, for the Lord's blessing, for a number of things. And um, in the midst of our praying, this text came to mind, and quite frankly, I just haven't been able to shake it. Uh, And since I'm reading Spurgeon's autobiography at the moment, Uh, I'll just take that as an indication that we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. At first, I thought maybe we would just hit the pause button on our series and come back next week. But as you'll see, you can't walk through these first nine verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 without brushing up against the very attribute that we were going to focus on this week anyway, which is our God is sovereign. But before we actually get to the text and before we read it, I want to think just for a moment about the sovereignty of God in general. Now, when we say that God is sovereign, we are speaking of His authority. We are speaking of His rule. We are speaking of God's absolute power and absolute control over absolutely everything. That's a handy way to think of it. God's absolute power and absolute control over absolutely everything. Or as I've said at other times, God is in control of every square inch of His universe at every millisecond of human history. In the Bible, there are actually a couple of titles given to God that speak of His sovereignty. King and Lord. Both are words of authority. So there are human kings and human lords, and they have a measure of power and control, but it is limited. It's limited to one nation, or it's limited, quite frankly, just to their lifetime. But that's not the case with God. The Bible actually takes these, these titles and takes them to the highest degree, that He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the highest of all. He is the greatest. He is the most authoritative. His sovereign purposes cannot be stopped by anyone or anything because He has absolute power and absolute control over absolutely everything. And that extends to the whole universe for all time. Go ahead and make the switch. Um, If anybody has a lighter... After the service, we're going to burn this microphone. All right? So, (laughs) there's no use in going through the annoyance of having it on one's ear if it's not going to work. You know what I mean? So, uh, I may be driving to Fort Wayne where I got this thing and asking them what's wrong. Uh, Not really. I'm not going to drive to Fort Wayne. Anyway, God's sovereignty we see in action all through the Bible. God's sovereign over the popping of this microphone. 
mean, I'm going to stand here and not wander around the stage except for a brief moment in a bit because the Lord shut down the microphone. Have you ever thought about that when you get interrupted? When your day gets thrown off track? When what you wanted to accomplish in that day doesn't get accomplished? When the microphone you want to use won't work? God has not lost control of the wheel. Your day has not slipped out of his control. He is as sovereign and as good in that day as he is any other day of your life. It, when we don't believe that, that's when faith becomes lost by people. That's when we start turning to human methods and human orientations, when I can no longer believe that God is sovereign and God is good in every day of my life, no matter what that day holds. When I lose a grip on that, Quite frankly, it's not long after that that my circumstances will lead me away from the church and away from the Bible and away from the people of God and away from the people who keep telling me that God is in control and that God is good. It's only by faith that you can take hold of that. It's not because you can work it out in your brain. It's because God said it. And he demonstrates his goodness and his faithfulness over and over and over and over and over again or else the events of the last week and a half of Glenn Lockwood's life are just, why that? Why didn't the blood pressure medicine work? Why wasn't the surgery more of a success? Why did Glenn's heart begin to fail? What you may not know if you hadn't interacted with Glenn in a while is that he was praying for that moment for a long time. But we see God's sovereignty all through the Bible. God is sovereign over creation. So the very first sentence in the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth so that by the very authority and power and control of God's word, everything comes from nothing. I mean, that's power, isn't it? That's control. He makes the sun stand still at one place. He says he sets the boundaries of the sea. He controls the weather. He controls the animal kingdom. He brings out the stars and he names them and he holds them in place. God's sovereign over creation. God is sovereign over history. In Genesis 11, he scatters mankind and gives them a bunch of different languages. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel says he, he changes times and seasons. He moves, he removes kings and sets up kings. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He's in absolute control now. And the reason that gives us great comfort is because he has told us what the future will hold. He has told us where all this mess is going. And he's not just guessing and he doesn't just foreknow. He just, just doesn't know what's in the future. He has written the future already. And so when today is all messed up, I can look forward to that day and know that though I don't understand how God's purposes are working out now in human history, I know he is sovereign and I know he is good and I know both will be on full and glorious display at the end. 
God is sovereign over our salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah 2. God chose us in him before the creation, before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1.4. That is control. When we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. That is power, both his power and his control. So that, Paul writes in Romans 9, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. If we're going to rejoice in the fact that nothing can snatch us from the hand of God, then we must be convinced that God himself put us in the hand of God in the first place. God took us up for himself. God will bring us safely home because he is sovereign. He is sovereign over suffering. Job 1 says it doesn't. Job proclaims the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Joseph is sold into slavery. All kinds of bad things happen. And toward the end of his life, he's talking with his brothers and he says, boys, let me explain what actually happened. God sent me here. Three times in Genesis 45, verse 5, verse 7, verse 8, he says to his brothers, God sent me. And then he looks him in the eye after dad dies and they're freaking out like Joseph's going to get us now. And he looks at him and he says, well, what you obviously meant for evil, God obviously meant for good. God sent me here. Paul prays, Paul says that his thorn in the flesh was sent to him to keep him humble. There's only one person who wants to promote our humility, and that is God himself. In the context of suffering, that he says he's convinced that nothing, that, 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 the, that the momentary afflictions of life do not compare to the glory that is to be revealed in Romans 8.18, he goes on later to say that God works all these things together for good. God is sovereign in our suffering. So God's sovereign, these are just a few of them. God is sovereign over creation, over history, over salvation, over suffering. If God is absolutely, if God has absolute power and absolute control over absolute everything, our list could just go on and on and on and on. And with that in mind, we come to 1 Corinthians 3, where we catch a glimpse of God's sovereignty and its relationship to gospel ministry. Now, just to set the context, things are not good in Corinth. It's not good at all. Paul's writing to correct some things, and Paul's writing to clear up some other things. And this passage from 1 Corinthians 3 fits within that. So let's read it together. If you're using the Bible in front of you and you haven't found it, uh, 1 Corinthians 3 is on page 953 of that pew Bible. This is what the Spirit says. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, 
are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and waters are one, and each will receive according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Let's pray together before we go on. Our Father, we pray in this moment that you would make your sweet, spirit-inspired, infallible, inerrant book live to us. Show us yourself. Show us ourselves. Show us our Savior. And make the book live to me. In Christ's name, amen. So in these two paragraphs, Paul essentially calls the church to maturity when it comes to thinking about gospel ministry and those who serve. The main idea then is that Christian maturity gives us a right view of Christian ministry. Christian maturity gives a right view of Christian ministry. Let's just walk right through it. First of all, seeing that immaturity focuses on human personality. Immaturity focuses on human personality. This is actually quite a problem in Corinth, this focusing on human personality. Paul could hardly get through the introduction of his letter without addressing it. So look back in chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. As soon as he finishes his Thanksgiving paragraph, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. It is this kind of immature divisiveness that Paul points out there and then addresses specifically in these two paragraphs. Because this cult of personality actually reveals their immaturity. Did you notice how he spoke to them? He said, what I'd, what I'd really like to do is talk to you as if you were spiritual people. As if you were keeping in step with the Spirit. As if you were even filled with the Spirit. As if you were walking according to the Spirit. But you're not, you're walking according to the flesh. That's what he says, isn't it? He says, what, I, what I'd like to do is lay down a fillet of doctrine in front of you, but I have to mix up some baby formula instead, because you're not ready. Your spiritual teeth have not grown in. He says in verse 3, while there's jealousy and strife among you, these divisions, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow a Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being 
merely human. Now just focus in on those two, two men themselves. Paul and Apollos, if you read through uh, Acts, you'll see that both of them spend time in Corinth. Paul first and then Apollos. Both had success. Both had opposition. But as the two preachers, they're different. Let me just give you a flavor of it. So here's what people in Corinth are saying about Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. Well, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. And then Luke records in Acts this of Apollos. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, eloquent speaking to his, uh, his uh, mental capacity, competent speaking to the power of his delivery. He's smart and powerful, and Paul just looks weak, and his speech is of no account. They're just different guys. And in the Corinthian church, if you check their Twitter accounts, if you took their iPhone and you checked their Twitter accounts, you would see that some of them, some of them follow Paul and hang on his every word. Some of them are following Apollos and hanging on his every word, but nobody in the church is following them both. It's just one or the other. Now, that seems natural, doesn't it? We all have uh, preacher preferences. I remember the, after the very first week that I preached in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, I was in the office, and I had there was one visitor card. I was so thankful there was a visitor there. I got the visitor card. Tuesday morning, I make the phone call. I don't remember the man's name. It's probably best. Uh, but I called him. And I said, hello, this is Toby Johnson from uh, Altaloma Baptist Church, just calling to follow up on, uh, see that you visited on Sunday, they brought their grandson, how were things in the children's ministry, was it, because I don't know yet, I've only been there a week, I'm wondering how the drop-off goes, I'm wondering how pickup goes. So I'm asking him all these questions, and I said, so uh, did you know people, just getting to know them, and uh, I said, and, and, so, and so what about the service? How, how, how were things in the service? Did you, you know, do you understand everything? Any questions you have? He said, well, yeah, for the most part it was good. It was just the preacher. It was at this point I realized he had no clue who I was. That I had on, I'd only said my name and not told him anything else about me. So I wanted to play along. I said, well, what about the preacher? And uh, he said, well, I was just waiting for him to really get to preaching. I said, okay. I said, I had preached from Psalm 1 about the value of the word of God, uh, specifically to set the course for the, the, the church, for my ministry there. And uh, I said, okay, was there, was there something you didn't understand about the preaching? Well, no. Was there something, did you think the preacher made an error in how he interpreted it? No. Was the application clear? Yeah. Did it speak to something in your own life? Yeah. I said, so, tell me again what the problem was. He said, well, I was just waiting for him to really get to preaching. I said, sir, I have no idea what you're talking about. Can you help me understand what does it mean to really get to preaching? And it's at that point that he told me 
various stylistic things about the activity of the preacher in the pulpit and the volume of the voice of the preacher in the pulpit and the amount of spit that comes out of one's mouth when one preaches and is really gotten to preaching. And so I decided to have mercy on him and not tell him that I was in fact the preacher uh, and uh, he didn't come back. All right, so, <laughs> but everybody has preacher preferences. I mean, after all, we're only human, right? Some people connect to one guy more than another guy. Lighten up, Paul. We all have our favorites. We're human. Well, Paul actually says that's exactly the problem. The problem is you're only being human. That these things where you'll only listen to so-and-so, you're only going to read Paul's books, you're only going to listen to Apollos' podcast, you're only going to go to Cephas' website. The problem is, is this is all driven by the flesh and not by the spirit. I said this Monday night, if you weren't here, I'm glad to say it again. If you were here, I'm glad to say it again. In many ways, when I came here almost 10 years ago, the person I really felt like I was following was Glenn Lockwood. And I said it then, and I'll say it now, and I'll say it as often as I need to. The person who made it the easiest to follow Glenn Lockwood was Glenn Lockwood. He refused to have this kind of Corinthian division going on. He was glad to preach. He was glad to teach the Bible. But if any of you went to him with some problem, as I know they did, because he would call me immediately afterwards, and he would say, this is what I told him. I told him you need to listen to the pastor, and I'm behind you. Even if he wouldn't have made the same decision, we would talk about that. But this whole cult of personality is, quite frankly, ridiculous. Is it nice when a people and a preacher connect to one another and have a long-term, you know, have a long relationship with one another? Sure, you get to know the rhythms of that preacher. You've gotten to know. Uh, the cadence of what I do. Probably you could tell any visitor here when I'm about to be done. Sometimes I know I fool you and I just go right on. But in, maybe you got, got the rhythm of what's going and all these things. But the, the, the cult of personality within the church world today, um, it, is, it is really magnified because everything is public. And we have to be a people who resist such things because it's only human. There's a story in Spurgeon's autobiography. Spurgeon was scheduled to preach somewhere on uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. And uh, he was late. Not because he was late, he abhorred lateness. He loved punctuality. But uh, he says in his autobiography, you can't control trains and these kinds of things. So he's late getting there. And... Uh, when he walks in, he notices that his grandfather, who is also a preacher, is up, and he had started preaching the sermon on that text. And so he sees his grandson, Charles, walking forward, and this is what his grandfather says. Here comes my grandson. He may preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel. Can you, Charles? Charles said, yes, sir, stepped up, started right where his grandfather had left off and finished the sermon. And in Corinth, the people were focused on who could preach the gospel better rather than the fact that nobody can preach a better gospel. 
immaturity focuses on human personality. Secondly, in contrast to that, maturity focuses on God's sovereignty. That's actually where Paul is going to take them next, from human personality to God's sovereignty. And he does this in a pattern of pairs in verse 5, 6, and 7. If you'll notice, he goes always from the humble view of man to the exalted view of God, okay, in these three verses. So first, the humble view of man, verse 5. Uh, let me just read all of verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. So he moves from a humble view of man to an exalted view of God. The word servants there is diakonos. It is the word for deacon, for minister, those who give their time and energy to others. He's saying these these deacons, these ministers, these preaching deacons, if you will, these servants are only that. They serve at the beck and call of another. That's what they do. But then the exalted view of God. Yes, uh, uh, Apollos and Paul were the means by which many people came to faith in Corinth. However, notice the last phrase of verse 5. As the Lord assigned to each. So when someone came to Paul and said, Paul, I understand what you're saying. I repent of my sin. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. And he goes off to be baptized. That is because the Lord assigned that convert to that man. That's what the end of that verse means. It is fine for us to speak about the fact that we lead people to faith in Christ. But may we, ne but may we always do so with a clear view that when we do it, it is because God has assigned that convert to you. God assigns the converts. What are they? Servants. Who assigns the servants their tasks and the fruitfulness of their tasks? God. Verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So there's this humble view of man. I planted, Apollos watered. Planting and watering. Now these are common tasks. In one sense, anyone can plant and anyone can water in some sense. At, Joe and Janelle got married Thursday night. It was, and it was beautiful. Uh, this wonderful picture, you know, there's... There's unity everything these days, all right? You go to a wedding, you don't know what, if there's going to be an expression of unity, you never know what it's going to be, right? There's sand, there's rope tied together, there's uh, candles, there's all kinds of things. Well, we get there, and at a table at the front where they're about to stand, there's an empty vase in the middle, and there are two smaller containers of dirt on either side. Now, what it was was Joe brought soil from the home he grew up in. Janelle brought soil from the home she grew up in. They mixed them together and planted a seed in it. So that out of these two homes, new growth is going to come. It was a beautiful picture. And, but, I mean, today, and Ron could tell you, because Ron, when he begins to speak about farming, I don't understand most of what he says. Not because he talks funny, but because... I mean, I'm the one that talks funny. He's always laughing, but 
It's because there are so many innovations and things to understand about soil and about air and about, and about the timing and about the rain amount and about all these things and about the interlaced economy that we have that, quite frankly, are, out of, are beyond me. But Ron can tell you all about them. But in some sense, I can go into my backyard and plant something and water it and watch it grow. So in that sense, anybody can do that. You plant something, you water it, you watch it grow. In classrooms this year at Gray Road Christian School, my guess is they're going to plant something in some class and water it and watch it grow. In fact, Mark 13, Mark 13, Mark 4 says that's about all you can do. The farmer plants, he works, he goes to sleep, he wakes up, and everything just kind of grows on its own. I mean, that's the best he could come up with. But you plant and you water, and anybody can do it. You don't, here's the thing. You don't need a seminary degree, seminary degree. You don't need a college degree. You don't even need a high school diploma in order to scatter the seed of the gospel. You simply must know it and speak it clearly and prayerfully. Friends, this week, if someone asks you to essentially plant the seed of the gospel in their life, if they ask you, to tell you, to tell them the good news about Jesus Christ, would you be able to do it? Would you be scrolling through your context to find the first pastor you could call? Would you feel like if someone actually wants to know about Jesus, we need to make an appointment in the church office? Or would you be able to sit down and talk with them? If, if you cannot do that, dear friend, I urge you and I plead with you, by, with God's help, by His Spirit's empowering, learn how to share the gospel. Learn how to speak clearly the destitution of man in his sin. You don't have to say destitution, but that we are lost in our sin, that Jesus Christ lived a life we could never live. He died in our place to satisfy God's punishment against us, God's wrath, and He was raised from the dead so that all who turn from their sin and trust in Him will come to know Him, will be forgiven of sin, will have a home in heaven, and will be right with God. Can you do that? I don't mean if you had a transcript of what I just said, could you memorize it? I just mean like that, if someone says, well, what is it that you Christians believe? What is the first thing that's going to come out of your mouth? I hope it is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that is first and foremost. And anyone can do that. So that's why it's a humble view of man. Any of us can do that. But then he exalts the view of God. Notice in the middle of verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, Beautiful word, but yes, yes, these men did the work. They did work. They went around, they traveled, they gave themselves to the work. But let's be clear about everything that happened after the seed went in the ground and after the water came from Apollos. God gave the growth. Dear friend, if you're a Christian, if new life has sprouted in your heart, it came from the same sovereign hand of God. It wasn't the special gift of some preacher that you heard that night. It wasn't a well-crafted last line of the sermon. 
It wasn't an invitation or an altar call that created new life. It wasn't that particular invitation hymn. It wasn't the presence of an aisle and the beckoning of you to walk down it. It wasn't a card which you signed. It was the sovereign hand of God reaching down from heaven and saying, Let there be light. And there was light. And your darkened heart awakened to the glories of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness and the righteousness he gives us. And empowered by that grace, you grabbed hold of Jesus and you've not let go since. Paul continues this pattern in verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So again, humble view of man, literally, neither the planter nor the waterer is somebody. Neither of them is a person, really. I mean, this is, he is exaggerating to make the point. He's not saying they're not people. He's saying they're just not somebody. They're not somebodies, and they're not somebody special. They're just not as special as the church in Corinth makes them out to be. And then he exalts the view of God. But, now, if you notice um, in the ESV, if that's what you're following along with, it says, but only God. It's just but there. There's no only in the original. It's just but. It's just another contrasting statement. He who waters, and neither he who waters, nor he who plants, or anything, but... God gives the growth, which actually makes it even more of a contrast. He's not just saying that he's not just saying that God is actually the one we need to pay attention to, though he is saying that. He's exalting God. He's saying that even though these people are nobodies, even though the one who plants is nobody, the one who waters is nobody, They've got nothing special to offer God that he doesn't already have in spades. They can't do anything apart from him. Even though that's true, God gives the growth. That's what's wonderful about it. It's through a bunch of nobodies that God has grown his church over the last two millennia. I mean, literally, we are nobodies. And it's, one, it's liberating to know you're a nobody because it's not counting on my eloquence. It's not counting on my cleverness. It's not counting on my exact ability to say the exact thing. This is why so many of us, I can't move, stay tripped up when it comes to sharing the gospel with friends because we think, well, what if I, what if I stumble? What if I don't quite know what to say? What if I just get through the basics and I can't answer all the questions? Dear friend, you're a nobody. So am I. But God gives the growth. When he gives the growth, it's not because you're somebody. It's because he's somebody. And so essentially these three verses just drive home the call to stop being immature, Corinthians. 
Stop being immature, gray road. The guys you're focused on, they're just servants. They're just seed scatterers. They're just waterers. They're not somebody. If you want to see where the real action is, where the real power is, where the real glory goes, look at the Lord who assigns them, the God who gives the growth, the God who gives the growth. Give him your allegiance. Give him your devotion. Follow him on Twitter and drop everything else. And so it's clear here, the human worker, one who does the work is nobody, but, and this, but, and this is so very important, while the human worker doesn't matter, human work does matter. Do not miss that. Because Paul's not done. He goes on. He says, he who plants, so this is uh, point three, maturity embraces human responsibility. Paul wants to make sure that God gets the credit for all the results of the ministry, but it is not his aim to dismiss the necessity of people doing the work of the ministry. Okay? So look at verses 8 and 9. He who plants and he who waters are one. Here's a reinforcement of everything he's been saying so far, right? The planters and the waterers are one. They're united. One Lord, one gospel, one church, one ministry team, one mission, one message, one work, one aim. He who plants and he who waters are one. Now it's interesting. What does he say? Each will receive his wages according to his labor. Apparently, what these nobodies do is important because they will receive, the word wages there is the word reward, they were going to receive some kind of reward. And in fact, if you go on later this afternoon and look at verses 10 to 15, you'll see that how they do their work really matters, whether they build with gold, silver, and stone, or whether they build with wood, hay, and stubble. If accountability is genuine, then the work must matter in some way. It matters that we do the work, and it matters how we do the work. And then he makes this unbelievable statement. We are God's fellow workers. Now, Paul uses that word of a number of people in the New Testament. He uses that word to speak about Titus and Timothy and Luke and Philemon and more. The word is sunergas, and it means this S-Y-N there at the beginning, uh, that means, you know, synthesis, coming together. That's that prefix. That's where we get that. But it's the coming together for work. Ergos means work. So it's people working together. It's people side by side doing the same work. They're on the same page. They have the same goal. So it speaks of one who's participating in the same activity. Now, he has been clear to tear down the exaltation of human personalities, but he will not dismiss human participation. 
Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that what God does and what we do are the same, okay? His work is sovereign, ours is not. His work is perfect, ours is not. His motive is perfect, ours is not always. He never runs out of strength doing his work, we do all the time. He's never distracted in his work, we are all the time. He's quite patient with his fellow workers, isn't he? He is absolutely effective in everything he sets out to do, and we are not. But he still says of you and me, this is my fellow worker. He invites us in. By God's design, this is how it works. He ordains that our work is actually crucial. He sends us on his mission, empowers us with his spirit, and this is the way that he is going to accomplish reaching the ends of the earth as well as the end of the street. By God's design, the people around us will not come to Christ without human beings doing gospel work. That is by God's design. By God's design, this church will not be strengthened without human beings doing gospel work. That is by God's design. Nobody takes the credit for that salvation. Nobody takes the credit for the strengthening of the church. And yet, God says, get to work. It is crucial, but it is not dependent on my power, my strength, my skill, or yours. Think about this microphone over here on this stand, all right? In order for this, in order for this to do what it's meant to do, several things must be true. That microphone must be plugged into the cord, to the right kind of cord. It must go to a particular uh, outlet where a wire runs from there to that board up there to the amplifier and eventually to these speakers. Now, it takes skill, it takes time, it takes work, it takes knowledge to do all of that, doesn't it? The one who's going to do, you can't just lay all those pieces on the floor and say, well, if the microphone's going to work, it's just going to work. No. You plug it in. You plug it in. You run the wire. You, have, you turn on the power. You do all of these things. Because you could, and here's the reality, you have to do all of that, but without someone outside of me standing at that microphone, it ain't going to work. Watch. This is what it sounds like when it is working. And that is precisely what ministry is. We must do everything as it is designed to do. We must be the men and women we are designed to be. We must plug in all the right plugs at all the right places and do the right things and we must know that if our voice is going to be heard by the hearts of men and women, God himself must unmute the microphone. That is true whether you are teaching your children on your living room floor 
That is true whether you're interacting with a neighbor. That is true whether you are speaking to a stranger at an airport. That is true if you are in seeking to encourage another Christian as they walk faithfully through suffering. You can say all the right things, do all the right things, have the motive that you desire, that God desires. You can speak his very words to them. But we know that if they hear, we know if it gets in, we know if the heart attaches to the words, it's because God in his absolute power and absolute control unmuted the microphone. Otherwise, the Christian sharing the gospel sounds like the teacher in Charlie Brown. God brings the clarity. God sharpens the words. But dear friend, do not stay only there. You and I must speak the words. There are no words to sharpen if no words are spoken. There is no message to receive if that message is not given. After all, from Paul's own life, later, in this very letter, he will say, I worked harder than everybody. Yes, it was God's grace empowering me, but I want you to know I worked harder than everybody. Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. God gives the strength with which we work, but he says, I struggle and I toil. So that in Galatians 4.19, he says he pictures his pastoral ministry as in such pain, such struggle, that it's like bearing a child. That's the kind of pain and struggle. Dear friends, it should remind us that serving the Lord is not for the lazy. It's not for the lazy in our homes, in the church, in our community, with friends, with neighbors, with strangers. Christian ministry is not like cruise control in your car. It is like pedaling a bike uphill, sometimes not in the right gear, and your legs are throbbing and sweat is stinging your eyes and you're drained. Have you ever been drained because you spent so much energy and time serving other people. Not, very important distinction, not are you tired, have you ever been tired of serving people? If you're tired of serving people, that is a problem with your heart. If you are tired from serving people, that's a problem of finiteness because we only have so much energy that we can give on any single day. But have you ever given all of that energy? Have you ever done it? When you look at the story of church history and the men and women who are kind of in the spotlight along the way, whose ministries are remembered and were blessed by God, can I tell you one of the commonalities among all of them? They were not lazy. None, not a single person that you remember that I could think of was lazy, didn't devote themselves fully to the task at hand. They traveled, they taught, they preached, they prayed, they served, they struggled, 
They poured themselves out for others and for the advance of Jesus' kingdom. Those who are mature in their faith focus on God's sovereignty, yes, absolutely. But they also embrace human responsibility. Why? Verse 13 and 14. Because each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. It will not test how much fruit was produced through the work. It will test what sort of work each one has done. Be very, very clear about that. So Gray Road, if we are to look at our congregation, where we are, and we would want to see more fruitfulness, we want to see people growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to see people turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus Christ, then we praise God for the desire. But while we rightly leave the results to the work of the sovereign hand of God, let us not be lazy. Let us not be uncaring. Let us not be unmotivated. Let us not be prayerless. Let us look in the mirror and ask, am I taking seriously God's work? Let's look in the mirror and ask, would the last seven days testify that I take serving the Lord seriously? Is it possible that I am lazy at home with my children, in my neighborhood, in the church, in evangelism? Am I neglecting ministry opportunities that God gives me? Those with people that I see all the time and those that God just providentially brings across my path. Am I doing the bare minimum as a mom or dad, as a Sunday school teacher, as a deacon, as an elder, as a Christian friend? Or am I pouring myself out to serve the Lord? Do I only attribute less fruit to the sovereignty of God without considering the possibility that a reduction in fruit may be the result of a reduction in our diligence and our prayer? God neither rewards nor blesses lazy servants. And there are many spheres in which we operate during any given week. We dare not be lazy in any of Immaturity focuses on human personality. But maturity focuses on God's sovereignty and embraces human responsibility. You see, Christian maturity gives a right view of Christian ministry. May God make us 
a mature people. Let's pray together. Before we pray, I'm going to invite you to examine your own heart in these matters. To be encouraged if you are indeed giving yourself fully to serving the Lord in all the different spheres of life. Be encouraged in that. Stay steady in that. But it's possible that some, maybe many, maybe all of us, find some place where we're not trusting the sovereign hand of God to do the work, where we're not giving ourselves to the tasks he's given us in the way that would please him. Let's examine our own hearts for a few moments, confessing our sin to the Lord. And if you do confess sin to the Lord in this area, I would encourage you today or in a day very soon that you would seek out a Christian friend who will hold you accountable. Father, we bow before you because there is no other proper posture for the sovereign God of the universe to receive from us but to bow. We recognize and embrace and celebrate the fact that you are absolutely powerful and absolutely in control over absolutely everything. creation, in history, over our salvation, even through our suffering. We think about those who are suffering in our own congregation, and we take comfort in the fact that their suffering is not a mistake on your part, that you have designs that supersede our finite wisdom, that transcend our understanding but will in the end cause them to be more like Jesus Christ as they follow you through their suffering. And that will lead to your great glory. And so we rejoice in your sovereignty. We confess we, as a, on, a, on the whole, have spent too much time thinking about human personality. It is exalted among us in the culture around us, and it is exalted even in the church. And we plead for your forgiveness for exalting man 
people beyond their proper place. Help us as we serve you to remember that we are indeed servants, that we are planters and waterers, that we are not somebody, but that through nobodies like us, you give growth, you assign converts, you bring new life. We confess that we have wrongly thought about your sovereignty at times in such a way as to be lazy. And Lord, we repent of it. May we never take a precious attribute of yours as an excuse for sin. Cause us, Lord, to embrace the responsibility you have given us to share the gospel with those outside the church and to speak your word and comfort and help and encouragement to those inside the church. And we pray that as we do, you would reach down out of heaven and say, let there be light. Without you, we can do nothing. But because you are with us, we will do something, trusting you to give the growth. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen.